for all those, all those things. So join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the title of today's message is Idol Issues. First Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to look at the first 22 verses here, and we're going to kind of briefly touch on the first portion of the, the text, and then really spend the, the remaining part of our application time looking at the last few verses of this section. First Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, beginning at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all drank the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We come in this passage, and as we've been saying now for a little while, this section here, 8, 9, and 10, are all dealing with this issue of meat that had been, eating meat that had been offered to idols. And what Paul is saying now, he's kind of been building his argument and we've talked a little bit about uh, just sort of the reasons that he has encouraged. At first, it was, it was kind of a gentle encouragement, and now it's, it's, it's moving into a full-on rebuke, uh, calling the Corinthians to stay away from this food that had been offered to idols. 
in chapter 8, we saw that they were being unloving by ignoring those whose consciences were truly bothered by eating this meat. And Paul said, listen, for the sake of your brother, just forget about the meat. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Then in chapter 9, he says, uh, and we talked about this, they were being proud. They were demanding their rights. They were putting their foot down and saying, we deserve this. And Paul said, listen, for us to follow Christ means setting aside our wants for the glory of God, being willing to set aside things that maybe we truly are, are deserve or that truly have, we have coming to us because we want to make sure that we're not doing anything to destroy the body of Christ. And then now finally in this section, he's, he's much more adamant. And he says, in some ways, by participating in these, especially when they were going to the temples to have celebrations. If you remember back when we first started chapter 8, we said that there were different ways that the, this meat might have come across their plates. They might be eating at somebody's house and it'd be served to them. They might be out in the marketplace buying it. But the one that he's really, really getting after is going to these temples and maybe they said, listen, they said, we're, we're not there to worship. We're not there to do this uh, in honor of these gods. We're just having a meal. They would have community celebrations, maybe birthday parties or, or, or family gatherings at these temples. And he said, listen, when you go to that temple and, and you eat this meat, even though you're not there worshiping like you did in the same sense that you were before you came to Christ, he said, you are participating in idolatry. And that's what we're going to look at in our time together this morning. And so he starts off uh, right off the bat with the example of Israel. He uses the nation of Israel as an example of people who got into idolatry. And some of it was just a subtle, subtle little steps, but they found themselves in a whole lot of trouble before long. But before he goes into discussing the idolatry, he talks about the blessing that Israel had. You saw that in the first five verses. They experienced these great miracles. They went through the Red Sea. They, they, God provided food from them. And they were even gleaning, he says, spiritual food and drink from the spiritual rock, which was Christ. You see, the children of Israel had received all kinds of gracious and good gifts from God. We don't have time to recount them, but God had been so loving and kind with his people. And you know, he's done the same thing with us. God is so, so good to us. We might this morning complain about the, uh, the temperature level, and, and we might be frustrated that uh, we can't do the things we want to do, or maybe uh, aches and pains in your body keep you from uh, experiencing the life to the fullest. Maybe your financial situation isn't where you want it to be. But when we stop and look, my brothers and sisters, we have so many reasons to be thankful to God. They far outweigh these things that, that often draw us away from Jesus with an attitude of complaining, an attitude of grumbling. The children of Israel had been blessed, and we too have been blessed. And that's what makes idolatry all that much more disgusting and insidious because we're turning away from the goodness of God fulfillment in him and we're turning towards that which is a cheap substitute and so israel had a blessing but then we see then their sin in verses 6 through 10 and we could spend a lot of time looking at each of these old testament examples in five verses paul gives five different examples of ways in which they 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 led into idolatry 
And this is even, this is just during the wilderness wanderings. This is just after coming out of Egypt. He doesn't even go into their later stages and when they totally went into complete rebellion. He mentions in verse 6 that they had evil desires. That's probably a reference to Numbers chapter 11, verse 4, where they were sinfully craving meat. They weren't content or thankful with what God had provided in the manna. They were grumbling and complaining against God because they didn't feel he had given them what they deserved. They wanted more. That's the essence of idolatry, wanting something other than what we should be satisfied with in God. The second thing they did was, was uh, mentioned in verse 7, straight-up idol worship. They refer to the golden calf incident. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 32. The third one he mentions in verse 8 was the sexual immorality uh, that they engaged in in Numbers chapter 25 by marrying uh, foreign women that God had specifically forbidden them from doing. And so it said in one day God killed 23,000 for that sin. In verse 9, uh, the fourth example, he talks about putting Christ to the test, likely a reference to Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9, when uh, in their disobedience, God had punished them by sending the snakes. You remember that? And, and uh, Moses had to forge that, that bronze serpent for them to look upon in order that they might be saved. And then finally, in verse 10, the fifth one is that they grumbled uh, again, most likely, well, there's, there were so many times they grumbled about food, about water, about the leadership, uh, about um, uh, the deaths of Korah and their families and their rebellion. There's so much complaining and grumbling. But I think Paul brings this up because all of these sins centered around idolatry. It's centered around God not being good enough in their eyes. And they needed something else to, in which to find fulfillment. That's the essence of idolatry. Where, where we, we are not content with God, what he's given to us, who he is, and we find something else that we, will, we think will fill that hole better than what God does. And so, verse 11 makes an incredible statement. He says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Isn't that interesting? God allowed the punishment for Israel's sin to happen to them as an example so that they might understand what they were doing wrong. But there was even a greater purpose in what happened back in the Pentateuch. It was so that the Corinthians, and thereby us, could be instructed about how to properly respond to God's blessings in our life and to not turn away to idolatry. I just thought this is just interesting here that God used even Israel's disobedience for something good. That is to teach. You know, our God is big enough to be at work in any and every circumstance, even in the stupid and sinful things that we do. It doesn't mean that He condoned Israel's behavior. He's like, hey, you guys got to be able to do these wicked and rebellious things so that I can talk about this to some first century group in Greece that you've never even heard of. Uh, I, need, I need an illustration here, so I need you to do something stupid. No, that wasn't, yeah, they, they were responsible for their own disobedience, yet God was at work saying, I'm going to use this situation as a teaching point later on in the scriptures. God does that in our lives as well. The good things, the bad the righteous choices we make, the unrighteous choices we make. God's at work in all of that, even in the midst of our sin. 
So then verse 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What a powerful verse. A verse that gets to the heart of our pride. The goal of this verse, I don't believe, is to strike terror into the heart of every Christian that he or she might at any moment lose their salvation. I don't think that's what he's getting at. Nor should it be the cause for morbid introspection. Some of us every single day may face that temptation of waking up, does God love me today? Am I really saved? Am I really part of his family? I don't think that's what Paul is calling us to do. I think, however, he is summoning us to avoid carelessness and spiritual pride. To think that one day, well, in my past, I prayed a prayer at one time, and I'm, I'm fine. Life's good. I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. It doesn't matter how I finish, like we talked about last week. It's just, I did this once, and I'm good, and I'm safe with God. And Paul says, listen, take heed, each of us, lest we fall. That word fall is used frequently to speak of falling away from the faith, of walking away. And these Corinthians were unwittingly in danger of wandering away from Christ by participating in these ceremonies, thereby engaging in idolatry. And he says, listen, take heed. Listen, God wants us to be assured of our salvation. He wants that assurance to be based upon the promises of the Word of God. And as we look at our life to see that we're walking with him, that we're desiring to repent of sin that he convicts us of, that we long to be with God's people, we long to be in his word. He's not, we're not talking about perfection here. But there should be a pattern of growth, a pattern of desiring God for the true believer. And that's the kind of assurance that he wants us to have. But there's a false assurance A false assurance that those who live any way they want, act any way they want, base base their salvation on, 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 on maybe an experience, and yet there's no evidence, there's no fruit. Jesus had so much to say about this. God longs for us to be assured of our salvation, but to hear these warnings and take heed... God longs for us to have a heart that's broken over our sin. It demonstrates that he's at work. There's so much we could say there. Verse verse 13, again, is another powerful verse that many of us have committed to memory. Many of of you have have called upon this verse, and it's been a, a comfort in times of temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not... Not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, we have to remember this verse in the context. This verb, um, speaking of enduring, it's in the perfect tense, suggesting these trials have come from outside of their willful desires. He says, the the word there could be translated, that no temptation has come upon or befallen or overtaken you. One writer says that this testing involves the allurements of idolatry and the persecution which comes as a result of forsaking a lifestyle of idolatry. 
Listen, if we're going to choose not to adapt to our culture's system of values, persecution will, will come. God reminds us here that no part of this trial or temptation from the desire for God substitutes or the temptation to cave to cultural pressure, it, none of it will be too much. God will make a way out. As we seek to live faithfully, honoring God as the one true God, standing in awe of Him, as we just sang, by our words and by our lifestyle, as we do that, He promises that there will be no temptations to walk away from that. It will be too much for us to bear. He said, God will always provide a way out. Again, there's more I'd love to say, but I, I want to I just turn now then, then to the warning to flee idolatry. The warning to flee idolatry. Verse 14 uh, is Paul's transition here, and he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from, from idolatry. You've seen how the children of Israel were blessed, and yet they turned away from God to cheap substitutes. And he say, he's saying to them, I don't want you to do that. Run away. Run away from anything that threatens to grab your heart and wrench it away from your affection for God. This is not a suggestion. It's not phrased as a recommendation. It's worded very powerfully. Run away. Flee. Get out. What were they fleeing? They were to flee the temptation to replace God with something else. Idolatry is a strange idea to us today. None of us, I presume, go to a temple anywhere and offer up incense or sacrifices to some statue of wood or gold. So what's the real danger? Jesus put different words into idolatry, which helps me think about it a little bit more clearly when he said this, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What is it this morning that you find yourself treasuring? What is it that is precious to you? Is there a possibility that it has become more precious to you than God in your relationship with Jesus? As he continues to press in on this, he brings a couple of illustrations. He brings in the illustration of the Lord's table, and then he brings in, in verse 18, the illustration of uh, sacrifices that had been offered. We'll dive into the Lord's table a little more deeply when we come to chapter 11. We'll come back to this. But what he was saying is that, what he's building to here is that the Corinthians, by going to these feasts, were doing something more than eating meat that had been offered to idols. He already agreed with them that idols were nothing. He says in verse 19, What do I imply then? That food offers, offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. So he agrees that these idols are nothing. So what's the problem, Paul? What, what's the big deal? Listen to what he says in verse 20. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul just seriously upped the ante on the seriousness of what they were doing. Oh, 
we're not just going to someone's birthday party and having a good steak here. What they were doing, it seems like unwittingly, were part, was participating in demon worship. He says, listen, I realize that that statue is nothing. It's what's behind that statue and that you're associating with. That is what God, it's what's got me all amped up and why I'm writing this letter to you. Paul wanted them to understand that partaking of those things that had been offered to idols, it was making them accessories in the sacrificial act. It was in some way creating a solidarity with these false gods and the demons that, lied, that lay behind them. As we think about what this passage has to say to us today, it, it can be difficult to try to connect a text like this to the 21st century. As I mentioned, probably none of us have little shrines set up in our home uh, where we sit around and spend our time reflecting and honoring Unless, unless it's our television, which most of our living rooms are all centered around. Anyway, that's another issue altogether. But most of us don't have these statues that we, we're bowing down before. So what's the, what does this text say to us? Well, First of all, we're reminded to flee idolatry. Just like the Corinthians, God has been so, I mean, just like the, the Israelites in the first five verses there, God has been so good to us. He sent Jesus Christ, his only son, as our savior, our substitute upon the cross, that we might, we might be with him, that we might be in right relationship with him. He's been so good to us. For us to trade him for some other higher affection, it's treasonous. How about you this morning? What is it that you're tempted um, to trade for Jesus? How do we even discover that, right? Because none of us are like, ah, this week I don't want Jesus. This week I want fill in the blank, sports. We don't, we don't say it. We know better theologically than to just say it out loud or to put it out on Facebook or something. It's subtle, just like it was with the Corinthians here. What is it, though, that I maybe can't live without? What is it that if God said, I want you to get rid of this entirely? And again, like we said, it could be a good thing. It has been uh, all of a sudden, maybe probably slowly, subtly, brought into the place of God. What is it that I'm spending the most of my time on? What, what is it that I'm spending much of my money on? What do I find myself thinking about throughout the day? These are, these are good questions that can often be pathways to lead us to the idols of our hearts. Flee idolatry, my brothers and sisters. The second thing I want us to see and to ask is, what's beneath the surface? You see, for the Corinthians... They were going to these celebrations. And now think about it from their standpoint. This new believer who's been growing, he's been taught by Paul, he's been learning. 
and he goes to this family gathering that's being held at a temple. And maybe even in his own mind, he's like, listen, I want to be a witness here. I'm the only one in this whole family that knows Jesus. I'm going to go to this gathering so that I can maybe have some conversations with somebody that doesn't know Christ. That's a good thing. That, that way of thinking, engaging our culture, engaging unbelievers, that's, a, that's good thinking. And they go to this party, and there's meat that, that had been clearly offered to idols here at this gathering. And he knew it, and he's like, those idols are nothing. And he digs into his steak, a little A1, nice medium rare, enjoying this baby. And he hears Paul's word, and he's like, what's the big deal? And Paul is saying, listen, there's stuff going on beneath the surface that you're not aware of, that you need to be aware of, as you seek to engage in this culture. Now, I have wrestled with this one all week because this is a, a, a tricky thing to apply. God calls us, and you've heard me preach. I don't know how many times I've brought it into sermons. We're, we're supposed to be out. We're supposed to be engaging with our, with our unbelieving community. We're not supposed to hole up and hide. God wants us out going. Jesus sat down and ate with prostitutes and tax collectors. And people talked. So there's a sense in which it's really important that we be out engaging. And, and people will talk sometimes. But then there are times when, when we engage too much. And we find ourselves intertwined with the world in ways that are ungodly. And we fall victim to their idols how do you draw lines? How do you discern this? I don't have a clear answer. There's not a textbook. There's not a checklist. There's not a, 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 a flow chart that can show you, well, if this, this, and this is present, then don't do it. But if you got this and this, and then you're okay. This is where I think as individual believers tied into the community of God's people can be led by the Spirit of God and encouraged or rebuked by God's people. We're not meant to live the Christian life on our own. We're also not meant to engage the culture on our own. We do it as community, as God's people together. And so we need the Spirit of God, and we need the people of God, along with the Word of God, to provide parameters and direction. Let me just give you one, one example of this. I think we have to be on alert. Our, our, our country is founded on, uh, and, and I'm not interested in getting a political debate, but our country is founded on principles of capitalism. And uh, we have decided as a country that that's, uh, well, it, we did anyways at one point, decided that that's kind of how we want to like have our, some of our, our, our principles being governed. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with that right? Being able to go out and earn money and, and do things for yourself. But the Bible does condemn potential pitfalls that come along with capitalism. Things like greed, things like selfishness, things like pride. And so as we're engaged in the world, we have to be cautious and careful that we're not buying too much into the world system. Again, as I said, this is not an easy principle here to apply. The Corinthians didn't see it until Paul plain, like painted it 
super clear for them. When you go to these ceremonies, you are participating in demons. And I bet the majority of them collectively were like, what? We never thought about it like that. How do we not see that? I'm sure there were some that were proud, and, and when you get 2 Corinthians, you find that's for sure true. They were like, I don't care, I'm going anyways. For the majority of them, I, I think that they were probably deeply convicted. This is why we need one another. This is why we need the body of Christ. This is why we have to have the Spirit of God. Spending time quietly with Him, saying, God, how would you like me to engage my coworkers? Should I go to this event or this party with them so that I can be a light? Or will, by my attending, will it say something that I don't want to say? This takes spiritual wisdom. It's not a cut and dry, uh, black and white issue. There's not a specific playbook. We know that we're called to be in the world, but not of it. We need to be mindful and watchful as to what God is saying to us as we engage our world. We don't want to be idol worshipers. We most certainly, I think, I think we would all agree, there's no one here who wants to participate in demon worship. We want to honor God. We want to glorify Jesus above all. We want to treasure him in our hearts above anything this world has to offer. May God grant us wisdom as we seek to do that. There's a verse that I skipped over here in verse 16. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? As I said, we'll get a little bit more into the theology of communion when we get uh, later on in, in chapter 11. But here Paul brings up communion to show that in the same way that we participate in the body of Christ, when we celebrate the Lord's table, the Corinthians were participating in an unholy way with demons when they celebrated those meals. This morning we get to do, we get to celebrate in the way that God wants us to celebrate and participate with the one God wishes us to celebrate with, that's Jesus Christ. I don't fully understand verse 16. There's a lot about the Bible I don't understand, and one of those things is verse 16. But when we share, celebrate the Lord's table together, there is a way in which we participate in the blood and body of Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly what that means. But the Lord's table is a way for us to commune with Jesus in a way that we don't experience in our own personal quiet times. There is something treasured and unique and special about the Lord's table that we can't just get when we're alone with God in our homes, singing worship songs in our car, as, as worshipful as those and, and, and crucial as those experiences are. The Lord's table provides a unique participation together in the body of Christ.